The UC Wellbeing Channel, your portal to a balanced body and mind. Continue your journey at uctv.tv slash wellbeing. It's my pleasure to be facilitating this session uh, on Martin Zhang, Zhang Chan from MGH. Um, welcome to Boston and the United States for uh, some of you and most of you. Um, so our today, the first session have uh, three speakers. The first speaker is Dr. Tom, Thomas Liu from UCSD. He's a professor in radiology, psychiatry, and bioengineering. Um, he's a director of the UCSD Center for Functional MRI. His research focuses on the use of functional MRI and re related neuroimaging methods um, to study brain physiology and function. Welcome. Okay, thank you for the introduction, Martin. Uh, so today I'd like to go over some of the uh, modern methods that we can use to study the brain and, and learn a little bit more uh, what's happening when we're doing meditation or other mind-body practices. So um, the main thing I'm going to really focus on is, is MRI-based methods, simply because those are currently the predominant method that you can use for non-invasive measurements. I will talk a little bit about EEG, but primarily going to focus on ways we can use MRI to look at anatomy, just based both gross anatomy and also looking at the wiring in the brain. So MRI can measure sort of white matter tracts and their properties. Uh, mostly going to talk about functional MRI, which is how we can measure the function of the brain using MRI. Talk a little bit about something called functional connectivity, where we can use MRI to look at how the brain is functionally connected. Uh, we can also use MRI to, to do things like measure blood flow, but I'm not going to talk about that too much today. Um, so we are really right at the cusp of, of where studies using MRI and other methods are really taking off. This is from a 2016 paper that looked at publications up to 2013, and you can sort of see that we're sort of right at this exponential cusp in terms of the number of studies looking at morphometric uh, imaging and then also functional imaging. And you'll notice that before that, there were a few studies, but these are mostly using uh, things like PET and SPECT, which are more invasive. Okay, so the first sort of anatomic study was by Sarah Lazar here in, in Boston, where she showed that if you compare experienced meditators versus beginning uh, for controls, there is increased uh, thickness of your cortex in the insula, the, the area of your brain that's responsible for interoception, which is how you feel what's inside yourself. And um, since then, there's been many studies. This was a review of about 30 studies, I believe, where, where they were looking at different parts of the brain and trying to see what was really um, held up over many studies. So what really held up are these are sort of the brain areas when you look at about 30 different studies of what changes in the brain with meditation. This is sort of the, the common areas. Uh, first, there is sort of areas in towards the front of your brain in your prefrontal cortex, which is really responsible for introspection and metacognition, which is thinking about thinking. Uh, there is the anterior cingulate cortex, which is that area of your brain which you really use uh, when you're trying to exercise self-control or focus problem solving. This is the area of your brain that uh, late at night is not as strong, and so you don't, shouldn't make decisions when you're tired, okay? And so uh, essentially uh, it takes a lot of energy to make decisions, and so th this is the area that gets tired when you need to make a lot of decisions. 
Uh, somatosensory cortex is essentially where you get all your sort of tactile information, um, so um, and also information about pain and other unpleasant stimuli. The insula is something that you'll hear often in uh, talks about mindfulness and meditation, so responsible for interoception. Uh, then we've got the hippocampus that was mentioned earlier today in Dr. Tansy's talk. This is where your memories are sort of coordinated. Um, and then sort of in the temporal areas, fusiform gyrus, that's the face area of the brain, sometimes called like the Jennifer Aniston area, where you can sort of respond to certain faces. And um, there are actually cells that are only responsive to certain faces. Okay? Um, and then in terms of the wiring of your brain, um, there is an area, uh, the lateral fasciculus, which is sort of uh, the wiring that sort of goes from your, that supports the high order functions, and then the corpus callosum, which is sort of the, the highway between your two uh, hemispheres. So that's sort of giving you a general map, and we'll be mentioning some of these areas th- during the rest of the talk. So first I'm going to talk about what's called TAS-related, a BOLD fMRI. BOLD stands for blood oxygenation level dependent, because it's really measuring how much oxygen is in the blood. And what you notice is essentially, if I ask you to do a very simple task, like opening and closing your eyes, and we ask what area of your brain has the oxygen changing in that fashion, what you'll find is it's really this area in the brain, the visual cortex. And so we can do that for every area of the brain with different tasks and start mapping out different areas of brain function. Uh, And in an fMRI experiment, you essentially have the subject lie in the scanner and um, do whatever task you want them to do. So I'm just going to go over a few sort of exemplary uh, studies that have been done in the literature and then talk about what's consistent across them. Uh, This is a very early study done from Richie Davidson's group, Antoine Lutz, where they were uh, comparing very experienced uh, meditators in the Tibetan tradition versus uh, uh, novices. Um, And what they found was when uh, showing people uh, sort of faces that would uh, task that would elicit emotional reaction, uh, those meditators who had a lot of experience and were practicing and were actively doing compassion meditation during the experiment showed much more sort of uh, area in their insula. So that area that is sort of your your internal state, a feeling of internal state, suggesting that perhaps with a lot of compassion practice and medi- um, uh, meditation, that you've trained this area of the brain to be much more responsive to other people's emotions. Uh, this is another influential study by Justin Brewer, who's at UMass um, Amherst now, or uh, Boston, I believe. And, um, and basically, this is another type of study where looking at what actually happens when you practice meditation versus when you're just sort of in a, fixed, uh, in a control condition. And what they found is that what really happens is this area of the brain here, the, what's called the posterior cingulate cortex, and also the, the uh, areas in the, in the prefrontal cortex, they go down. Um, and this is what's called part of what's called the default mode network, which has received a lot of um, attention in the literature. And it, it essentially, with meditation, it appears that you're able to deactivate this area of the brain called the default mode network. And what is the default mode network? And what are these areas of the brain? Well, uh, when, you're de- when you're deactivating the default mode network, you're actually in sort of these, the states where you're actually not really thinking about yourself, not ruminating. So the default mode network is considered that area of the brain where you sort of, when you're in a sort of bad state or you're thinking about uh, things that are not very uh, good for yourself. So when you're in negative states, such as embarrassed or um, tired or, or just cranky, your default mode is really strong. And then when you get out of that state, it is weaker. Okay, so that's sort of the default mode network. 
And interestingly enough, uh, you can actually, meditators can actually decrease their activity in the default mode. So this is comparing uh, meditators versus novices. And you can sort of see the meditators, uh, if you ask them to go into a meditative state, can pretty much consistently deactivate their default mode. Okay? Whereas uh, novices are sort of still going back and forth and going between these sort of states, which are sort of, you could think of these as sort of positive and negative states uh, in terms of psychological affect. All right? The other thing that we can do uh, with fMRI is not just looking at the effects of meditation, but also start getting at what is, you know, how do we actually form a thought? What's actually happening when we think a thought? And so this was a really interesting study um, from Kalina Kristof's group where basically they took experienced meditators who were, you know, if you meditate, you're very experienced at looking at your thoughts, right? So these are the perfect subjects for really studying what is the brain doing. Um, And so they had subjects either keep track of spontaneous thoughts or uh, just do a word task where they weren't looking at their thoughts. And what they found are these areas of the brain um, lit up. And, and let me talk a little bit about what happens. And so what they found was that as, you're, as the thought is just arising, just, just before you realize there's a thought, the areas in the brain that are active are related mostly to the hippocampus. So that's the area that's responsible for memory. So it's as if something from your memory is just emerging before you even know it. And then what happens is right as you're realizing you're thinking, then areas such as the insula light up. And so it's almost like you're sort of now sort of that's your effective response to that memory. Okay. And so the next state phase in a thought is, oh, I'm having a thought. What's it affecting in my body? And then finally, areas like the dorsal anterior cingulate, which is sort of this self-control part, then come online. And so, okay, I've had the thought. I have this effective response. Now what I'm going to do with this thought? Okay, so it's a nice way of sort of teasing apart what we sort of, if you look at your thoughts, you sort of internally you see all these things happen, and this is just showing that you can see it actually using fMRI. Uh, so there's been a, quite. A, this was a. There's been several review articles out now, and so when people look at different um, area uh, studies, they find that pretty much the insula and the uh, anterior singlet uh, are very consistently affected by meditation. This is another uh, meta-analysis where here it was the hippocampus and the amygdala, which is responsible for your fear response. Once again, we're seeing the singlet cortex. But the real take-home message is that there's a lot of diversity. So this was actually a more comprehensive study of 78 uh, functional studies. And what you're seeing in the different colors are different types of, of, of meditative practices and areas that they light up. And so you can sort of see that there, yes, insula and premotor cortex and ACC tend to be consistent, but there is quite a lot of diversity between different practices. And so that's something that we need to keep in mind as we're trying to understand, you know, what, is, what do these different practices do? They don't uh, have, they have different effects on the brain. Okay, now I'm going to transition a little into um, what's called resting state fMRI, which is sort of a fMRI but a certain different flavor fMRI. And so this is a movie showing what your brain would look like if we looked at the oxygen levels in your brain as you just lay in the magnet very quietly, not doing anything. As you can sort of see, your brain is just doing something. Um, And at first glance, it may appear to be random, but it turns out there's a lot of structure in what your brain is doing. Uh, so, for example, if I told you to tap your fingers while you're in the scanner and map out those areas that are in sync with the finger tapping, you would identify your motor cortices. Okay? Now, if I did another experiment, I said just lie in the scanner and don't do anything, and I looked at your brain signals, your oxygenation signals, they would just fluctuate 
fairly randomly. But the idea is that I looked at the left motor cortex, say in green, and then I looked at the signal in the right motor cortex, they look very much alike. Okay? So then we can ask the question, if I take a signal uh, in one area of the brain and say what areas of the brain are doing the same thing, then I can come up with what's called a resting state map, and I can all start to, to map out how the brain is functionally connected. And so this is now where we can put someone in the scanner for about 10 minutes and come up with a map of their functional connectivity. This is the basis for some very large NIH studies going on right now. In, um, there's one study that's going to scan 10,000 kids over 10 years, and this is one of the modalities where they're going to look at how this connectivity develops over adolescence. So one of the most famous resting state networks is the default mode network, which you already talked about. And that's shown here, this paper, 2001 or 2005, where it's showing in red here, basically, these are the areas of the brain that are functionally connected to the posterior cingulate cortex, and that forms your default mode, which we talked about. Now, it turns out it, it seems like there's another area in the brain that is here in blue, and the blue means it's anti-correlated. So that means when, when the default mode's going up, this network is going down. And so here you see the signals. When one network is going up, the other one is going down. Okay? So this other network is called the, the task-positive network or the default attention network. And so this really sort of got people excited because it's sort of like this yin-yang view of the brain that you have these two systems that are going, uh, uh, playing off of each other. So you either have this more internally focused sort of self-referential part of your brain, the default mode network, that's active when you're just thinking about yourself. Then when you have to actually do a task and be engaged in the external world, you switch to this attention network. Okay? Interestingly enough, uh, this area of the brain, the posture cingulate cortex, it, it's sort of responsible for our self-referential aspects, and it also uses up most of the energy in your brain. It's the highest uh, used user of energy in your brain, and according to some of my clinical colleagues, it's also, nature has found it so important that I, I, there's either no or very few strokes ever found. This, this area is very rarely damaged by a stroke. Okay? So for whatever reason, nature has decided we really need to keep this area very highly perfused and keep it going. All right? So this was an interesting study uh, done in uh, very experienced, uh, comparing, um, taking very experienced practitioners in Tibetan Buddhism and looking at the differences in the default mode network, this anti-correlation between the two networks when they were either doing a fixation task, focused attention, or non-dual awareness. And it's a very interesting finding in the sense that uh, with the focused attention, these two networks actually became more anti-correlated. Whereas in the non-dual awareness, where there was sort of being this context where things occur, that the actual anti-correlation became less. And so this leads to potentially a very interesting interpretation where the type of meditation you do can actually affect the interaction between these two networks. So if you're really focused on some external object, then it might make sense that there's going to be much more uh, going back and forth between external and internal. Whereas if you're just sort of this container of awareness then maybe it doesn't matter that whether it's internal or external. And so that might be why there's less uh, anti-correlation between the two. Uh, we can also look at how the brain connectivity varies with time. And so we don't expect, typically what we'll do is look at the correlation over five minutes. But over five minutes, your brain does a lot. And so we might, people start looking at, in smaller time windows, what happens if you look at how the brain is connected over, say, 20-second or 30-second time periods 
And then what they can ask is, so this is sort of a, a measure of how different parts of the brain, the connection is varying between two different parts of the brain over time. And what they find is that the more this varies, then they can actually predict how often someone is daydreaming. So this sort of gets at sort of a method of where we can sort of start using fMRI to sort of look at what's happening dynamically. So let me just uh, sum up some of the uh, challenges and opportunities, and then I'll end with some sort of thoughts on where we're going next. So I think one of the challenges we have is there are a diversity of practices. And if we're going to make progress in this field, we might have to sort of converge on just a few to really study. One other aspect is the early studies were fairly cross-sectional comparing experience versus novices, but that leads to the question of, is it the meditation that actually caused the effect, or were these people predisposed to become meditators because their brain, and then they already had these biological differences. So longitudinal studies moving forward are going to be very important, yet at the same time, um, they are obviously very expensive to do and not easy to do. Uh, there's also the issue related of novice versus expert practitioners. So, for example, if you give someone an eight-week MBSR trial and they've just started, then initially there's going to be a lot of effortful doing, and there's probably you're studying a lot of how the brain learns as opposed to what meditation does. And so you're sort of it's maybe difficult to disentangle those two issues, where it's going to be very different if you're studying sort of very advanced practitioners who already it's very easy for them to do already. So we need to keep that in mind. Uh, Control groups and interventions and also control conditions are going to be something else where, um, you know, what is the correct control group um, and what should that control group be doing? Uh, the field has realized that you can't just have them doing nothing because that's not a good uh, sort of uh, control condition. So typically now they'll be doing some health education or something similar. Uh, control condition, you know, what is, you know, the control condition? The best we have now is maybe fixation, but... It, that's a problematic because if you ask a meditator to fixate on something, they'll go into a meditative state. And so that's something we need to figure out as well. Uh, then, then obviously there's a lot of individual differences and there's some evidence that there's also cultural differences. So if you take people to raised in different cultures, meditation will have a different effect on them depending on their belief systems. How the brain evolves, even structurally, depends very much on its environment. Okay? And so you're actually dealing with a different brain to start with. Uh, and then the last three things, I'm going to talk a little bit about multimodal methods, where we might want to go with that. Uh, I'm also going to talk about how we need to go beyond the brain and look at measures of embodiment. And also, uh, finally, you know, the question of you know, what is our goal? Is our goal to use, you know, obviously, one aspect is basic science, you know, understanding the brain, but also therapeutically, what are we trying to go after? Are we after precision mindfulness, where we can tailor the, the uh, treatment to the uh, subject? So just a few more slides. So, um, you know, prior to fMRI and, and still going on, a lot of uh, meditation and mindfulness research has been based on EEG and MEG simply because they're much more accessible. And we've certainly learned a lot from that. Um, for example, this is a study from the late Catherine Kerr showing that uh, when you meditators are much able, better able to modulate their alpha rhythms and sort of really reduce it and, and use the alpha to block out sensory input from areas that they're not interested in. So when they, they're uh, focused on the hand, they're really able to block out the conditions. And so this was a case where maybe meditation is, is teaching people how to really modulate this, this gating mechanism of the alpha rhythm. The problem with the EG and MEG is, at least with current methods, it's still really hard to tell where exactly in the brain it's happening except for a very big swath. And so one, one approach is to combine EEG and fMRI. Um, and so, for example, this is a study where we're showing that you can get 
you can sort of start telling where in the brain, and here we see this thalamus and visual cortex, well, those areas of the brain that are really related and, and sort of uh, tied in with alpha activity. Uh, in terms of embodiment, uh, you know, we, a lot of these studies look at the brain in isolation, but clearly the brain's controlling a lot of other activity and in turn is influenced by that activity. And that's something I think we're going to have to keep in mind, especially given the fact that, as, you, you know, as most practitioners know, the, the, you know the, the, the attention to the body, whether it's illusory or not, is very important um, for these practices. Uh, I think this is a very interesting study where essentially it's showing that your ability to detect a visual stimulus depends on whether it occurs synchronous to your heartbeat or not. And so if I present a visual stimulus synchronous to your heartbeat, you are less likely to detect it than if it's asynchronous to your heartbeat. And in fact, the insula, you show almost no activity when it's happening with your heartbeat versus when it's asynchronous. So even our perception of reality is, can be determined by where we are um, and, and, our body, and, and our sort of physiological aspects. And finally, um, there are some really interesting experiments I think we should start thinking about. These are some um, by Erison's group from Sweden where they, these, they're inducing out-of-body experiences. So this is, some of you may be familiar with the rubber hand illusion where I can sort of convince you that your hand is actually somewhere else or that your body is somewhere else. And so they use these things where they put people in the scanner and were able to sort of give them the, the illusion that their body was actually not in the scanner but actually somewhere else and able to find that the posterior cingulate cortex, which we talked about uh, being responsible for your sort of self-referential state, is very important for figuring out where you are in space and also, um, you know, is it your body or is it not your body? Okay? So I just want to give you sort of a taste of, you know, what we've done and where we might be going in this field. And with that, um, oh, one last thing. Okay. So um, in terms of personalized mindfulness, um, you know, there is this thought that, you know, mindfulness and these practices involve attentional control, self-awareness, and emotion regulation. These are the areas of your brain that we currently believe are responsible for those different subsystems. And it may be that, you know, one idea is that if you have a brain scan that allows you to understand um, how a certain individual person's systems are working, then you could potentially tailor the mindfulness treatment to go after. For example, if it's their attention control that's more in need of improvement, then it might be focused attention. Whereas it's emotional regulation, perhaps it's breathing. And so it may be that you know all teachers know that you have to tailor the treatment, the, the mindfulness practice to the student. And it may be that if you understood a little bit more about a brain scan, a 10-minute brain scan might be able to tell you, okay, where this person lies on these different systems, and then perhaps you could tailor the, the practice according to that. So this is the last slide. So thank you. Okay. Thank you, Thomas, for the fascinating story and uh, presentation. So this, our conference is designed for stimulating the dialogue um, for scientists from different backgrounds. Uh, due to the time, we are going to move on to the next speaker, Dr. Clifford Saren. Um, Dr. Saren is from UC Davis. Uh, he received his PhD in neuroscience from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. His primary focus and long-standing interest is the effects of contemplative practice on physiological and behavior. He has served on the Mind and Life Program and a Research Council and currently a member of the Mind and Life Steering Council and has been faculty at Mind and Life Summer Research Institutes uh, in the U.S. and Europe. 
His other interest in, includes um, uni and multisensory processing in children with um, autism spectrum disorders. Uh, welcome. Thank you very much. Can you hear me okay? Um, I really want to thank the organizers and uh, Harvard Medical School and uh, my colleagues. This is a, a wonderful opportunity. And uh, Thomas has just basically set up my talk absolutely beautifully. Uh, and thanks for the shout out for some of our data on the first slide. Um, so uh, Alejandro uh, mentioned Francisco Varela. And in the spirit of uh, acknowledging teachers who are no longer with us, uh, I cannot uh, overestimate um, or overemphasize the profound impact on this uh, field of uh, contemplative science that uh, Francisco Varela has uh, worldwide as well as personally as one of my uh, dear friends and colleagues. Uh, and also for the founding of the Mind and Life Institute. He's kind of the intellectual father of this interchange in many ways. So I want to begin with a statement from uh, David McMahon, who is a religious uh, studies scholar at Franklin Marshall College. The scientific study of contemplative practices often neglects the role of cultural, social, political, religious, and ethical context. And Thomas just uh, touched on this in the last few slides of his talk. Isolating these practices from these contexts for the sake of scientific study may inevitably distort how they actually work in people's lives. We cannot make sense of contemplative practices in isolation from these contexts. They are inextricably, systematically intertwined with them. And I want to introduce the notion of a social imaginary. This is McGill philosopher Charles Taylor. And let me just read what he says and think about how one understands this through the tools of science or other investigative techniques. By social imaginary, I mean something much broader and deeper than the intellectual schemes people may entertain when they think about social reality in a disengaged mode. I'm thinking, rather, the ways people imagine their social existence, how they fit together with others, how things go on between them and their fellows, the expectations that are normally met, and the deeper normative notions and images that underlie these expectations. We heard a lot about that in Tatiana's presentation. So this social imaginary is something that I would argue needs to be front and center when thinking about the impact of interventions and clinical trials and really appreciating the individual differences from cosmology to personal beliefs that are embodied in the worlds that each person that we encounter represents. There are also disciplinary social imaginaries. So Thomas May uh, and I, I'm an EEGer, so I think in terms of milliseconds and dynamics and not being able to really pinpoint where things are in the brain. And folks who do a lot of fMRI, they may have a neuroplastic reorganization. We all do as a function of what we do repeatedly. They may think there may be a different scientific social imaginary that comes with each even sub-discipline. So that when we are in the same field, 
we're not really in the same field unless we encounter all of our assumptions that we can articulate and put them on the table. So to tell you a little bit about my social imaginary, this is a picture of Richie Davidson and myself. And I presented this at a conference on Buddhism and science, and I introduced it as, for some few of you, you may understand this, Hasidic aliens. Nobody knew what I was talking about. But when I said Jews from outer space, everybody cracked up. But it gives you an idea that we thought we could somehow extract deep meaning from squiggles on the scalp of the electroencephalogram, such that we wanted, before Photoshop, a friend of ours to go through the painful process of making this photo. Now let's cut to Francisco Varela with a cap on his head at the Institute of Buddhist Dialectics. Why are these monks laughing? Because the mind is here and we have a cap on the head. So the cross-cultural implications of this kind of understanding of where the, what's under the hood and where it is uh, is really important. This is a chapter in a book, Visions of Compassion, that uh, kind of goes into some of these cross-cultural issues. So one of the things that Evan Thompson, a philosopher at uh, University of British Columbia, has um, put uh, forward is to conceptualize, so this is one of the looping effects that we are subject to. We can conceptualize mindfulness as an inward-looking awareness and regulation at the individual difference, at the individual mind. And we add that to the view that we project onto a conception of the brain, thereby endowing this view of mindfulness with a biological reality. What you then get is an individual's conception of the mindful subject superimposed on a neural substrate. This whole construct then loops back onto how we conceptualize ourselves. To be a mindful parent, co-worker, mindful soldier, etc., you need to learn how to downregulate your amygdala through mindfulness training. So we are enmeshed in complex narratives that blend secularized versions of Buddhist teaching and lay versions of neuroscience such that I've even recently heard some people, when you say mindfulness, might even think it's neuroscience because of all of the presence in the popular press of scientific uh, proving or evidence of the effects of meditation, as Alejandro's Time magazine covers have pointed out. So this is a book that is uh, going to be on sale in a couple of weeks. Um, the table of contents, Evan Thompson talks about all this. There's some wonderful chapters in here. So if you're interested in this, this is a plug for a pre-publication. This should be very interested reading. So now I'm going to um, briefly talk about an effort to translate contemplative theory into the language compatible with scientific psychology. And this is a work that I did collaboratively with Amishi Jha, John Dunn, Antoine Lutz. We want to use an approach based on lived experience, meditation instructions, and teaching from the Buddhist tradition, current thinking in psychology and neuroscience. 
is can we make multiple dimensions of mental development that are supported by mindfulness practices? And this model has to be in terms that many different disciplines can understand. And let me say at the outset, this is a heuristic. It's a teaching device. It is non-exhaustive, provisional, subject to refinement and reconfiguration. This is not the way it is. So imagine a cube which represents three core dimensions that we presume are locally orthogonal aspects of cognitive function intentionally cultivated by mindfulness practices. The assumptions that we begin is there's some physical posture, some embodiment, as we we had just heard, that there's fundamentally a non-aversive stance, that you've not been coerced into engaging in this practice, that the practice occurs in a latent or explicit ethical framework, and that there is some task set that you need to retain, whether it's an instruction to pay attention to the breath sensations or to make your mind like sky. These are both task sets. The first dimension is essentially focused attention. It's the degree to which your attention can be object-oriented. The object does not have to be present. When you traveled here and looked for your luggage at the baggage claim, you were looking for your bag and you kept not seeing it, but you were very object-focused. The second dimension we call de-reification, which is one of the core trainings in mindfulness-based practices where you are come to understand that thoughts do not describe reality. You can see thoughts as objects, not full, reified descriptions of the way things are. The third dimension we call meta-awareness, and that includes a background awareness that enables you to report what is going on in the presence of focus. You know, I can give this talk and still appreciate the architectural richness of this beautiful conference room, and I can report it after I finish giving my talk. That's a bit of background awareness. It's the affect you have access to when you might be reporting on the color of a sunset. There's a broadening of awareness even in the presence of a focus. There's another aspect to meta-awareness, which is basically being able to perceive the task sets in which you are multiply embedded. You're in the task of life. You haven't forgotten that you're an embodied being that needs to take care of basic biological needs, but you also can attend to the discourse and feel what the seat feels like at the same time. These are these three dimensions that we talk about creating a state space, and they're associated. Each point in this space has four subsidiary qualities. A sense of aperture. You can be oriented on a candle flame or a panoramic sense of spacious awareness. You can be... You can have mental clarity, or you could be fatigued and have a sense of internal dullness. You can have stability. How? What's the probability of being in one location uh, in this space at the next time iteration and effort. And we talked, Thomas talked about effortful uh, practice for beginning and less effort for um, 
experts. So we can map mental states like addictive craving has very low dereification, high object orientation, low meta-awareness, a lot of mental clarity, a lot of stability. It doesn't take much effort to be obsessed with an object of desire. You can think about rumination and mind-wandering in this space. You can also think about focused attention for novices, a lot of effort, much less effort and more meta-awareness for experts, and then practices like non-dual practices or spacious uh, awareness practices, open monitoring, more awareness of meta-awareness. This model could allow us to begin to conceptualize designing experiments to track where people are in this kind of topological state space over time. And... um, So then we can also think about regions that are problematic. Sometimes people become depersonalized with intensive meditation. So in the remaining moments, um, you can read all about this. It took us four and a half years to write this paper. It won't take you that long to read it. It's in The American Psychologist. So in the remaining few minutes here, I'm going to uh, run through um, this large research project I've been involved in for the last 13 years. So if I take two minutes extra, you may be able to forgive me. We want to know whether or not training and focused attention and the four measurables, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, can help train attention and emotion regulation. Is attention related to emotion, to psychological function, And what are the physiological changes that accompany these effects? And how do qualitative analyses of retreatants' lived experience relate to our empirical data? So Alan Wallace, who's a Buddhist teacher, practitioner, author, taught two three-month full-time residential retreats about a decade ago. We had 30 people. And the primary training was focused attention, stability, relaxation, and vividness of perception, along with these four immeasurables. And we promoted, um, that's the four immeasurables here. So in 2007, we had uh, a three-month retreat, and we randomly assigned 60 people, age 20 to 70, to either be in one three-month retreat or a second one. So this was a group pulled from the same self-selected group that wants to do a three-month retreat with Alan and comes, we fly them to the retreat center three times to be tested just like the retreatants. And that also gives us extensive baseline measures for themselves when they go into their own retreat. It would be a workshop to go through all the data from this project. We've done follow-up now up to seven years, and we've had more than 80% retention at each time point. We expect people to be able to focus better and sustain their attention, to withhold inappropriate responses, to increase ability to engage with suffering, and ultimately our motivation is to increase pro-social tendencies. So we want to also look for evidence of positive biological change related to psychological traits. So we had lots of experiments, 15 computer-based experiments, lots of methods from EEG and autonomic variables to facial expression, questionnaires, interviews, 
biochemical variables. I'm not going through this. This is a massive undertaking um, involving a whole orchestra of scientists and um, co-investigators and uh, funding that has been very generous. In Red Feather Lakes, Colorado, we had this meditation lodge. Here's Alan Wallace teaching in a retreat. We built in this dorm room laboratories, EEG lab. And, but in terms of context, which is the title of this talk, you know, if you go to a meditation intervention and you can meditate in a 108 foot tall stupa of the great stupa of Dharmakaya that liberates upon seeing, and this is where you're sitting, maybe there's some effects of your environment on the quality of your sitting. Or you could be at 8,000 feet and you have ice fog coating everything in a magical world. But we are looking at uh, telomerase and telomere length changes in this study and their relation to psychological change. Here's the telomeres, the end caps. This is work done in collaboration with Liz Blackburn and Alyssa Apple at UCSF. As your cells divide, the telomeres don't get copied and they get shorter, but the enzyme telomerase can lengthen those telomeres. We find a 30% increase in telomerase at the end of three months in the meditation retreat. But is this related to psychological change? Here, you see in the control group, this is change in a sense of purpose in life. Paul talked about purpose as one of the ingredients of well-being. In the control group, if your sense of purpose in life didn't change over three months, there's no relationship with the level of telomerase at the end of three months. In the retreat group, there's a strong relationship. But it also means that there are people who did a 900-hour intervention and their sense of purpose in life decreased. That's important to know. Here is neuroticism. No change in the control group. Decreased neuroticism, it's a tendency to make mountains out of molehills, we say. More telomerase, the lower the neuroticism at the end of three months. So we've, and I'm almost done here, we decided to look at telomere length change in a one-month insight meditation retreat at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. This work is spearheaded by Quint Conklin in our laboratory. Again, in collaboration with uh, Alyssa and Zhu Lin, here's the meditation hall. People came and they were doing a silent 30-day retreat, roughly uh, 10 to 14 hours of meditation a day, seven days a week. All right? This is not a simple intervention. We took blood um, at 5.30 in the morning from retreatants. We had phlebotomists come to the retreat center. This is actually a picture of my son's bedroom. He was off in college. We turned it into a biosafety level two blood lab. We had a BUA for this. It's okay. And what do we find? Three weeks in retreat appears to be good for telomeres. 
the control group, a group drawn from the same community matched for meditation experience that also go on meditation retreats in this insight tradition. The average, this is the order rank of telomere change in three weeks. As many go down and get shorter as get longer, no net difference. You can see this pattern is visually shifted to the right. Fewer people get shorter, more people get longer. This is statistically significant. However, it turns out that individuals who begin high in baseline neuroticism in their personality, they are the ones who show the effect. This is a control group. This is length in telomere change in three weeks. This is the statistical modeling of these changes. If you're low in neuroticism, no change. If you are low in agreeableness, if people tend to piss you off, you shut up, you're quiet for a month, your telomeres lengthen in three weeks. If you're high, highly agreeable, no change. But interestingly, if you're highly open to new experience, there's also a positive impact. So does meditation affect telomere length? What about noble silence, no talking for 30 days, no email, no eye contact, no Facebook? The opportunity for adequate sleep. We've heard sleep is an ingredient in well-being multiple times. Three delicious vegetarian meals a day. Removal from stressful family work situations. Highly qualified and inspiring teachers. Beautiful physical surroundings. Support, even in silence, from a like-minded community. Still, given our typical waking experiences, there is the profound matter of mental training during meditation practice with the intention to cultivate a more inquisitive, discerning, and caring understanding of our lives and the lives of others. And that's not to be taken for granted. Thank you very much. Thank you, Cliff, for your amazing and fascinating uh, presentation. Uh, you stimulate and redefined the mindfulness and the further char characterization of these biomarkers uh, are warranted. So our next speaker is um, Dr. James Nettles. He's a molecular pharmacologist who applied uh, computational pharmacology methods toward drug and mechanism discovery. He's from Emory University. His scientific work include defining molecular mechanisms of activity and acquired resistance associated with several important classes of antiviral and anti-cancer drugs. He is also using modern biomedical bi methods to study mechanism of effects for traditional medical formulations and practices. Um, thank you. I'm. Uh very happy to be here, and I want to express thanks for everyone who uh, traveled here for this event, and particularly for the sponsors who put together this remarkable meeting. 
Um, what I'm going to do in this talk is to uh, uh, discuss some uh, uh, concepts in terms of uh, give you some uh, my personal background, some of the current collaborators, define concepts of coevolution and chemical evolution, and also kind of take you on a quick tour of some of the things in terms of development in uh, Western science and particularly my area of pharmacology as it relates to Tibetan medicine and trying to understand that. Um, I'm going to uh, present you a model for your consideration in terms of uh, a way of connecting Tibetan and Western biomedical research. And uh, then we're also going to introduce some of the studies that we're currently doing on Tsotol, uh, which is a mercury-containing uh, formulation that's a key ingredient in the uh, precious pills. So personal background. Um, I, I have uh, uh, got my Ph.D. from uh, Emory University and uh, in molecular pharmacology and define mechanisms that are associated with uh, various natural products. And this is uh, a case where uh, microtubules are uh, proteins. They're made up of a protein tubulin, which forms in uh, linear sheets and forms dimers, and they grow and they collapse. And so a lot of what we think of in terms of uh, cell motility, because they're actually part of flagella and the tails of cells. They also form the uh, content of cytoplasm, which if it's not stained or colored in some way, you typically think of the nucleus of a cell and the cytoplasm being empty. But in fact, it's filled with these proteins, which we didn't uh, discover until um, probably it was in the 1900s that we actually realized what this was, and we could uh, now develop drugs. So Many natural products were uh, used. This is the compound Taxol, which is from the Pacific yew tree, which is involved in stabilization. And uh, this is actually what happens in the presence of different kinds of drugs is we can get this dynamic uh, behavior. This is a mitotic cell. You can see this particular compound causes it to pause. This causes the microtubules to form strange bundles. This causes it to uh, completely fall apart. And so we can actually explain these things uh, uh, using uh, a combination of electron microscopy, which is uh, used to collect uh, high-resolution diffraction data at a molecular level, and then we can build molecular models within that data in order to be able to understand features that are responsible for both the activity of these compounds and also acquired drug resistance that occurs over time. This is additional work that I did at my, as a follow-up from there. I went to work for Novartis, who also has the largest natural products library of all the pharmaceutical companies. And in that my capacity, I'm working in uh, informatics. And so in this case, we're using drugs as probes of functions. And we developed uh, these uh, uh, multi-scale uh, descriptors, which allow us to rapidly compare chemical types and use databases of information of compounds to then do target prediction of unknown compounds. This becomes very interested if we're starting to do extraction of natural products with compounds that we don't actually know their biological target. 
Um, I went back to Emory and was in, on the faculty in the Laboratory of Biochemical Pharmacology in the development of antivirals. And we have worked on medications for HIV, HIV combinations, and hepatitis C. Uh, this is, brings us to the present, which is uh, now shifted modes, and we're going to utilize that information to form this collaboration. And we're particularly interested in the activity and the toxicity associated with the, to this Tibetan medicine formulation compared to other forms of mercury. So our design is to do straight-up cell-based testing, but the tricky thing is these compounds are not considered to be soluble in water or normal cell testing media. So part of this study initially, uh, we are, this is a collaboration between uh, Dr. Tony Tenwell, who is one of the first uh, uh, Westerners to become a Tibetan medical doctor. And uh, she's also a PhD student who just defended, and soon she'll be her PhD in anthropology. And so she has uh, brought a sample, and she's a wonderful resource in terms of bridging Tibetan medicine and Western science. Dr. David Lind, he is in past chair of the Department of Chemistry and is also the founder of the Southeast Center for Chemical Evolution. Um, Dr. Cassandra Quave is a assistant professor in dermatology, and her area of expertise is ethnobotanical medicine screening. So with this team, she has the cell systems, David has the analytical lab in chemistry, and Tawny has the uh, background in terms of Tibetan medicine. So we're looking at ways in which we can be respectful to the tradition and also do good medical science. So the concept, coevolution. In biology, coevolution occurs when two or more species reciprocally affect each other's evolution. And we have lots of examples of that. Charles Darwin spoke to that in the early days. More recently, it has been demonstrated that coevolution influences the structure and function of the communities and the dynamics of infectious disease. This is something that's directly come out of HIV research and us being able to understand uh, cohabitations in terms of its effect on the disease and also how selective drug pressure evolves evolution of the disease. So there's a large uh, area of understanding that we have here, which is a tremendous new opportunity. Chemical evolution is something that you may not be as familiar with, but uh, it can refer to these variety of things. It's actually a hot topic and is a funded area by the uh, National Science Institute. Specifically, our area of interest is the uh, italics version there, which is molecular evolution, which is at the scale of molecules, which uh, kind of brings us to our model. So our model is, uh, this is actually a, was a poster on the, uh, on, the, on the wall outside David's laboratory having to do with chemical evolution. And this has to do with the idea that we typically, from a Western research approach, think from a top-down. And this was stated earlier. And so we have this top-down approach in terms of naming, 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 and we're all the way down. And we have in terms of uh, intelligent life-producing organism, we have the idea of the ribosome, which is a functional portion of RNA. So it's a functional cluster of molecules which can catalyze biological reactions. But that came from something. 
And so that came from uh, all the possibilities that can occur in terms of self-assembly of smaller molecules, smaller molecules, smaller molecules, smaller molecules down to the origin of life itself. And so this is actually, as I said, a very interesting area of research. And it seems to me that it actually lends itself to this same idea in terms of the connection between Western research being matter-focused and that our Eastern approaches are more mind-focused from the bottom up. So uh, this is going to be our quick journey through time. And uh, this is a concept that was given by uh, Dr. Raymond Chernazzi. And uh, this is uh, just to give us a little history here. So uh, Dr. Shinazi is a virologist. And so what the uh, cartoon there says is, you know, uh, doctor, uh, I have liver problems. And then it says, here, eat this mushroom. Now, at the time of uh, 2010 BC, both the Eastern and the Western uh, biomedical systems related to clean water, they related to plant animal food resources as a source of health and also as a potential source of disease. As we move up, in this case, the uh, person is saying the same thing as they have a liver problem and now he's saying that mushroom is not enough, you need to follow this practice. Because at this time, the Eastern, both in the East and the West, there were uh, schools that had developed that uh, uh, were body-mind wisdom schools that were both in the East and the ancient Greece, as well as as many other uh, locations. And so you can see the Western example is Pythagoras and Hippocrates, who's the uh, father of Western medicine. And um, we still take the form of the Hippocratic Oath. And one thing that is uh, rather uh, key in this process is that in the context of the Greeks, they had the idea of the atom as a, for some reason my fonts have messed up on this, but the Greek had a concept of a solid atom that was uncuttable which is interesting because the uh, Buddhist traditions talk about smaller and smaller particles that are constantly dynamic and changing. So there was a, somewhat of a, a, a theoretical difference in terms of the framework, which actually split apart in terms of what happened in the development of the Tibetan systems of medicine and what happened in the Western world just following that. And so the first millennium associated with the Western world was kind of the Dark Ages. Then, you know, the Greek civilization was destroyed. We had barbarians who were attacking one another. And uh, then we actually, when we think of our modern Western science, it's actually in the latter part of the second millennium. And so this is our next slide. And it's, uh, doctor, I have a liver problem. And it says, that practice that you've been following is superstition. You need to drink this potion. So these were extractions of plants. They were extractions of coal tar oil. They were a whole variety of things that were being used in our modern Western world that were being sold as medicines. However, we became more enlightened and we realized that the doctor, you know, can I have a liver problem? That uh, potion is snake oil, swallow this pill. 
So in our Western tradition, we've had a tradition of kind of rejecting some of our past as being ignorant, and we're learning more and more as we're going forward. So that, I think, is a, is a key piece that will help us. <laughs> Perhaps I think that uh, some of the other speakers use the term of, of humbling themselves in the presence of sometimes what happens as of our experience of the Tibetan medicine. But in the Western world, we had rapid development. So this, just in uh, 85, then we realized that those pills were ineffective and we developed uh, uh, patent medicines that were antibiotics because we actually had started to occur antibiotic resistance to specific types of antibiotics. We started to develop broad-spectrum antibiotics. And then... We then realized that for, in the case of the liver disease, it really, for hepatitis C, in case it wasn't really a bacterial infection, it was viral. And so we had landmark discovery of new antivirals who actually could treat the source of the disease. And in the context of the antiviral uh, discovery, we then you know, in 2010, this is Dr. Shanazi's slide again, that antiviral is artificial. Here, eat this mushroom. <laughs> so we've kind of come full circle because actually the uh, natural products are again seen as a new frontier of Western drug development. And that's really exciting. I said, however, there's something that we need to keep in mind here. And if you went back to the previous slide, which is the that antibiotic doesn't work, take this antiviral. And the time frame of that is 1996, which also coincides with this. And this is a patent from uh, uh, Glaxo, who had taken over Bristol-Myers Squibb at the time, and it has to do with a synergistic combination of specific compounds that on their own selected for antiviral resistance, but in combination had a effect on the whole that was significantly greater than the sum of its parts. So the control of HIV and the management is due not to single compounds and new compounds, but it's the development of new complexes, which I can tell you from personal experience of having worked in the labs that developed these compounds is that uh, uh, it is, it happened Randomly, and from a, our Western scientific standpoint, how we actually combine things or predict synergy is difficult. But that is something that I think that we can learn from the Tibetan system because this process of predicting synergy is, uh, Dr. Tidwell and I have actually worked on a paper, they use a concept of tastes and potencies, and the tastes and potencies are measured using what I call a sophisticated array of nanoscale detectors, which is what our taste buds and our nasal passages are. And they're all hooked to a big supercomputer. And so this data has been being collected for generations, and this tradition can be passed on because there's a body-centered knowledge that perhaps our brain does not know we, as Western scientists, may have an opportunity to be able to find new things from the Tibetan medicine, which brings us to our last project here, which is the Sotol. This is a very complex formulation. 
And it, as I said, it forms the basis of the precious pill, and it contains primarily mercury that has been tamed of its toxicity. Now, what's the molecular mechanism for that? Is this true? I mean, there is evidence of it in terms of the human population who take these pills. I personally have taken some of this. Um, there are animal studies that don't show toxicity. There is also recent electron microscopy studies that suggest that the total contains nanoparticles. And so our question is, could that be something, that there actually is a molecular form that's associated with this Tibetan medicine that gives it its molecular property in terms of its lack of toxicity as well as its characteristic because this compound is being described not as directly effective but as one being catalytic. It acts to enhance the activity of others. It acts as a synergist in combination and also it reduces toxicity. As we heard the story earlier regarding the spider bite, these things are also thought to be able to help draw out certain poisons from the system systemically. Now, if you've done, uh, this is not a crowd that maybe does a lot of nanoparticle research, but it's actually a very hot topic now. This is now the new area of nanomedicine is an opportunity for drug delivery. So it's very great in to be able to formulate something using nanoparticles because of the size selectivity controls. They get into some cells. They don't get into other cells. They're tissue specific. There are a variety of things that can be engineered into nanoparticles if you substitute them correctly, which is still something we haven't solved. So this is what we decided to do was we would use a transmission electron microscopy to do characterization of the micro and the nanoparticle morphologies in this. And we're going to use aqueous suspensions because that's what the Tibetan practices do as well as that's what we need to actually run in our cell-based assays. So we've looked at uh, aqueous suspensions of the Tibetan medicine compared with red mercury sulfide because the primary ingredient in the total is the uh, uh, mercury and the sulfur. And in its form, the mercury sulfide is well known. And uh, we want to uh, be able to analyze that structure. So our, uh, this is the basic experimental design, is our hypothesis we had this in this most recent analysis. So I'm going to show you some data that we just collected. And uh, our hypothesis is that it's primarily made of these uh, organic coated HS nanoparticles. That's important because that actually gives us the property of hydration. And they cluster in a specific way, giving rise to the distinct features that we can analyze by TEM at both the micron and the nanoscales. Um, we are we think that they are these nanocrystals and they're stabilized in a specific way. Okay. So anyway, this is the general overview of the, what's known in terms of the crystal structures of mercury sulfide is they either form a tightly packed alpha uh, packing formation, either in hexagonal or trigonal crystal space. This is an example of uh, uh, red mercury sulfide in nature. 
this is a sample of mercury sulfide from Sigma Aldridge, and you can see the size of 50 milligrams is a very small amount. This is uh, another form. This is actually occurring in nature also. This is the beta form of mercury sulfide. And this is black in nature, and it is known to have this uh, cubic form. What's interesting, if you notice the difference here, is that this has some additional sulfurs. It has had a, a different internal fold, and that the mercury is tetrahedrally coordinated, which means that the, some of the that means that all four of the electron shells are occupied of the mercury. So it's not available in terms of reactivity and what we would normally think to be of toxicity. So it's a potential mechanism of how this would have its non-toxic effects. And so uh, that is our uh, hypothesis, is that it has this at the core and it has decorations. And this is actually consistent with the fact that the density you see is much less for the Tibetan formulation than it is from this form. So what we did was we did uh, collections of our data. We saw that we had the uh, uh, X-ray diffraction in ours showed we had both uh, alpha and beta HGS. So we ran that as we just showed the setup. And what you can see is this is the uh, cinnabar, which is the mercury sulfide, and it sinks to the bottom of the water. The tzothol, on the other hand, actually floats. This is very interesting. So it actually floats on the surface of the water. However, it can be hydrated and put into solution. So we have made mixtures of this with acacia gum, other types of suspension agents that are typically used in terms of nanoparticle research. We have then uh, pulled these samples. This is actually TEM grids that are sitting here. You can see our, uh, our lab mate, Yushi, who is uh, doing the spotting of one drop of these mixtures on here. And then with that, what we do is we're examining these plates, which are carbon-coated grids, which have micropores that allow these microparticles to go within the grid, and then it gets separated into quadrants. And in doing so, we can actually then quant semi-quantify the distribution of these particles within a particular drop. This is actually necessary if we're going to move this into some type of screening system to be able to understand what the distribution is, the stability, et cetera. We've done this with, you know, you can have fallout, recoagulate. I won't show you all the data. But this is a basic uh, overview. And what you can see here is that this is the uh, sothal sample here. This is the cinnabar sample. And in this case, you can see that they both have, you know, particles that you can see on, the, on a micron level. But when you zoom in here with the uh, sothal, this is at uh, 200 nanometer, you can see a particle here which is probably less than, and as you can see here, less than 50 nanometers. And what we are seeing is actually clusters of these small particles in our larger aggregates. Now, this is a dehydrated system. So what happens, we go it in there, we, we put it in in solution, and it dries. So you're seeing the clusters after it has dried. When you look at the mercury sulfide, same thing, we get the distribution, but you look at the smallest particles there, and they're well above 200 nanometers. So there's a distinctly different morphology, and so there is something that has engineered that has stabilized a different molecular state between these. Uh... So 
that brings us back to um, our uh, present, which is the uh, idea that the formation of the small molecules in terms of the uh, uh, structure of the, of the small molecule has a self-assembly property under certain conditions which stabilizes something which in the case of the nanoparticle actually could have a catalytic function. It could also have a function as a nanodelivery agent. There are a number of potential mechanisms that would be associated with this. But the key is to be able to uh, uh, continue to refine our experiments in order to uh, get it into cells, and then we will update you when we actually have the toxicity and the activity data. So thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you.